0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Matt will be kicking off this morning a five-week series through the book of Job called The Righteous Sufferer, which we believe is going to be impactful for a lot of people as it deals with some really important themes For us, So if you have a Bible there, why don't you open that up or turn that on, more likely, uh, to Job chapter 1. It's a bit of a long passage this morning, so bear with me. But if you open up to Job chapter 1, we're going to be reading through the whole chapter into chapter 2. So let's read from the Word of the Lord. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well. Then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the civilians attacked them and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans, forming three raiding parties, came and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Sorry. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this... Job did not sin in what he said.
1: Thank you, Keith. Well, good morning, Anchor. How are we? Good to see you all here on this Sunday morning and a special welcome to those of you who are new or visiting. If you would like to find a church family to be a part of, we would love to help you do that process. Just before we dive into the word this morning, um, today, Anchor Northern Beaches is celebrating their first birthday, 12 months since they launched, which is a... A huge milestone. And so we are celebrating from afar, from a distance, what God is doing in our brothers and sisters over at Anchor Northern Beaches. And just wanted to take a brief moment to honor uh, James, Dawson and, and Callan, as they've um, stepped out in faith. We sent them probably around 18 months ago now to um, to go and plant Anchor Beaches. And God has done an, an incredible work through Their leadership, their faithfulness. And so, a big happy birthday to all of the saints and brothers and sisters at Anchor Northern Beaches. I do want to recommend two books for you as we dive our way into a gritty series in the book of Job. Um, I recognize that there is so much that could be said on the topic of suffering. And we simply do not have time to cover it all in the five messages that we will over the course of this series. And so, there's two books I want to recommend to you. The first is a book called uh, "Prayer in the Night" by a lady by the name of Tish Harrison Warren. She's a Episcopalian priest in the states and has written—I um, uh, don't even know how to describe it. It's—it's it's a beautiful book. Like every sentence you read, you're like, "Wow, that." That's a quote. And she will feature a lot in this series. She's a writing from a pastoral perspective and has a beautiful personal story of how she has endured pain and suffering. And particularly would encourage that book for any women who have uh, processed the grief of miscarriage and loss um, Of a family member. So, Tish Harrison Warren, Prayer in the Night. It's not just about suffering. There's more to it than that, but that is an excellent book that I've just finished. And the second book, which I've only just started, is a book called Suffering by Paul David Tripp, Gospel Hope When Life Does Not Make Sense. And Paul Tripp is uh, much more approaching this from uh, the aspect of how we reconcile suffering with the gospel. Um, And Paul Tripp is an author and Uh, scholar, theologian. Uh, He approaches the topic a little bit differently, but very, very partial in his concern as well. So those two books I would highly recommend. Uh, There are plenty of others out there as well, but at at least those two would start, would, would make a good start. As we dive into this series, we're actually going to be leaping into what is By by all scholars' best accounts, the oldest text that we have in the Bible, or at least one of the oldest texts, and it wrestles with humanity's oldest problem, the oldest question, the question of suffering. So the reason we wanted to do this, uh, this series in the book of Job was because our world is tainted with pain. Our experience is that of people who live outside of the garden, on the other side of the fall, in a broken world, In what Tish Harrison Warren says, that suffering is the white noise of our human experience. And that is to say that it is always there in the background. Now, for some of you, suffering as white noise, it may be so quiet that it's hardly discernible. And for others, the white noise may be brutally loud in your ears. But it is always there. And in Western secular society, we simply do not know how to suffer well. We we don't have a framework for it. We don't have an ethical framework. We don't have a philosophical framework for it. I mean, is it just, I don't know if it's just me, but we get a head cold and we're in bed questioning God's existence and his love for us. It's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And it's just a head cold. It'll pass in 24 hours. And uh, it's just that the cold hasn't kicked in yet. 15 minutes later, you'll be fine, right? But we are so quick to second guess God's love and question his existence. And so we need to know how to respond, not if, but when suffering comes knocking on your door. My hope in this series is that we will be able to provide you with the internal tools and the relational wisdom as a community to figure out how we walk through a season of suffering this series would help us as a community to learn to suffer well together as a community. You see, at Anchor, we don't shy away from suffering. We don't shy away from pain and difficulty as if to just gloss over the difficult circumstances of our lives with some version of toxic positivity. And we are real about the brokenness of this world. And so my hope in this series is that it would help equip us as a community to learn to journey alongside each other through the dark night of the soul. My hope is that it will also help us avoid some of the common mistakes that Christians make as we seek to care for others in a season of suffering. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard phrases like this uttered before, but these are faith-crushing Phrases that have often rolled off the lips of Christians who, I don't know if they're genuinely concerned in carrying on not, but things like, you're suffering because you have hidden sin in your life. Your prayers haven't been answered because you lack faith. Or offering some kind of a simplistic platitude like, you know, God reserves the toughest suffering for his strongest saints. Some of those things may be true, but not automatically. But more than anything else, my hope is that as we journey our way through Job, it would provide not necessarily answers, but a story to locate yourself in, in the midst of suffering, pain and brokenness in a way that would radically alter how we walk through those seasons. And I want to suggest to you that one of the best apologetics of our faith to a watching world is how we respond to suffering in our lives. That people would look at us and see that we suffer in such a way that is so vastly different. That, that people would come to the funeral of a Christian and say, I have never witnessed the type of response to suffering like I have in this place because there is hope here. And in another context, there is simply romanticizing death. So, those are my hopes. Let me just offer this little caveat before we dive in. Contrary to popular belief, Job does not give us the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world? And if we set out on this journey with that hope in mind, we will get to the end and be left bitterly disappointed. The answers are not there. Job is never privy to the conversation that Keith read for us, the heavenly courtroom scenes that take place. Job never knows that that takes place. We are only given window into that by the narrator of the story. But Job does not give us the answer to the question that we all ask, why? Now, that's not to suggest that asking the question is wrong or that it's the wrong question to ask. I'm just saying Job doesn't necessarily give us the answer. Or perhaps it gives us the answer, but not in the way that we are expecting to receive it. I want to help you. Um, I want to give you a frame of interpretation for the book of Job, because if it's not answering the question, why God, what is it doing? And one of the most helpful things that I found in my research for this series was something called the triangle of tension, which I've since heard as a Uh, Is a consulting framework and a project management framework. Everyone loves triangles. But I want to introduce you to the triangle of tension that's going to come up on the screen here. And this triangle really helps us interpret and understand what is happening in the book of Job. And so there are three things that the book of Job is really wrestling with, that Job himself wrestles with, that Job's friends will wrestle with, that Job's wife will wrestle with. And here are the three truths. The first truth is that God is just. That God is just. He's perfect. He's fair. The second truth is that God punishes unjust. This principle of divine retribution, that God would see something that is wrong and he would deal with that. The The third principle is that Job is righteous. He's blameless. He's a good man. He's a man of integrity. Now, these three truths all find themselves to be conflicting. And the problem as we wrestle through this book of Job is how can all three of these things be true? One of them has to be wrong. And so Job's friends, I think if we click to the next slide, Job's friends will want to defend as they come and offer Job support and counsel. They will want to defend the retribution principle that God punishes wickedness and evil. And that's why there is Punishment and suffering in the world. Job's righteousness will be defended by Job. He will stand before his friends and say, No, 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 I have not committed sin. This is not divine punishment in my life. I am a man of integrity. He will defend his righteousness, and that will cause him to begin to question some of the other aspects of God's character. And then the final one is a a character who emerges in the latter half of the book. His name is Elihu, who is another friend who comes along. And he begins to defend God's justice. And he calls into question, just like Job's friends do. They call into question Job's integrity. He begins to call into question Job's integrity as as he defends God's justice. But he does it from another perspective. He will do it from the perspective of saying that sometimes God sends suffering Uh, Because he knows that sometime in the future, something is going to go wrong. So he seeks to just nuance it a little bit in a weird way. But this is the problem that the book of Job throws at us. How can all three of these things possibly be true? God is just. He operates on the justice principle in the world. And Job is righteous. That is the triangle of tension that we will walk our way through. So you ready for the book of Job? It is a gritty, honest journey into the problem of pain. And so I'm going to pray for us as we dive in. Father God, we know that our experience of this world, our experience of relationships, our experience of work, our experience of family is tainted with brokenness. Pain, hurt, and suffering. And God, if we're really honest with you, those experiences cause some visceral reactions for us doubt, questioning, anger, and frustration, passivity, deconstruction. And God, we confess that we simply have not been given the tools from Western secularism of how to deal with the problem of pain well. We long to be the type of community that doesn't gloss over the brokenness of this world, that doesn't romanticize death, but has the internal tools and the relational wisdom to be able to journey through this as a community together, to cling to your promises. And so, Father, we want to pray as we dive into this series, that you would help us to see your wisdom and help us to trust you and to even trust you when we don't have the answers that we long for. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would speak through your word and help us to be the type of people who know what to do when we find ourselves in the valley. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, amen, Amen. a hesitant, amen. You pray a dangerous prayer like that, you're not really sure if you want to say amen. You know, one of the people that has had an enduring impact on my life, i actually no longer alive, but I I very vividly remember the testimony of this person. And his name is Shane Viglione. He was the late father of... Um, Isaac and Joel Viglioni, who have were a part of this church, helped launch Anchor City back in the day, and have gone again to help plant Anchor Southwest. And Shane was uh, one of the the deacons of the church that I was at out in Western Sydney. Uh, he was a very successful businessman. He had launched a or taken over his father's camping business called Oz Tent, very successful. The 30 second pop up tent. It's a global company, uh, kind of like the the Rolls Royce of the camping world. And Their businesses had been successful. He'd married a beautiful woman called Amanda that had six incredibly beautiful children. He was dearly loved by his church community. He was a man of integrity, of faith. He had spent uh, a number of years alongside with the other deacons of our church working towards a very significant building program, getting us out of a rented facility and into a building that the church owned. And in his mid 40s, he began to notice he had some pains in his stomach and went to the doctor to find out that he had been diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer. And I still remember the Sunday that they announced this diagnosis to the church community. I'd been tasked as the, you know, the youngest person on the staff team to Film the interview. I had no idea what I was filming, but I was sitting front and centre behind a camera listening to Shane share his testimony. And towards the end of his testimony, Shane said, you know, many of you have asked the question, why Shane? Why me? I've got so much to lose, six kids. Why Shane? He's so needed in this church. His gifts of leadership are so needed And to that question that he'd been posed, Shane said this, Why not me? If God would call me to suffer, then so be it. I counted a privilege. And I promise you, there was not a dry eye in that auditorium that that morning as we saw before us a modern day picture of the story of Job played out before our eyes. Four months later, Shane would pass away very quickly and his family would be plunged into the depths of grief. Six kids, a widow, honestly to this day still reeling from the grief, pain and loss that occurred. A father who was snatched away. And a church community left to ask the question, why God? Look of all the people you could have chosen to take. Why Shane? There's probably some other people in this church community who could be standing at the front of the line. But why? And why is it that we can look at people's lives and see a quota of disproportionate suffering, like good people who who seem to just drown under wave after wave after wave of suffering? When there are other people who aren't as holy, righteous and good, and it just seems that their lives are black. Why God? If God is good, if God is gracious, if God is powerful, then why do the innocent suffer? We're left to ask a question. What kind of God do we worship? What kind of God do we worship? And how does he work in our world, particularly when we find ourselves in the valley? So let me introduce you to our character, the main character in this story. His name is Job. Not Job, but Job. He's not an Israelite. We're told that he's from the land of Uz. We don't really know where that is. We don't really know when this book was written. Although scholars' best guesses are this was written probably around the time of Genesis, around the time of Moses and the very early parts of Israel's story. This man is not an Israelite. He's not what's described as someone who is chosen of God's people, but he is called a God, Führer. And to speculate much more than that would be to to do just that, to speculate, we simply do not have much of the historical context of this story. And perhaps that's intentional for us because it helps us locate ourselves in this story. But what we know of Job is that he is a blessed man. His life is blessed. We know that he is very wealthy. He has a huge quantity of sheep, like 7,000 sheep, heads of cattle, donkey. Like we're talking an astronomical, for the, for the ancient Near East, an astronomical amount of wealth. He's, he's like the Elon Musk of the ancient Near East, minus all of the noticeable character, character defects of, of an Elon Musk. But he is filthy rich, the richest man that we know of. He's got a beautiful, big family. And for some of you, that's a sign of blessing as well. He's got seven sons, the perfect number, three daughters. And not only does he have lots of children, but it's a harmonious family, like they get together for regular dinner parties, together celebrating. Job is blessed, but he is also blameless. The narrator tells us that Job is a man who is upright. He is holy. He is godly. He's a man who fears the Lord. He shuns evil, a man of integrity. Now, those statements don't say that Job is perfect, but what they do say is that Job is a man who walks before the Lord faithfully with integrity, seeking to honor him. And life is good for Job. His family is hashtag blessed. His business is thriving until we reach verse eight. Now, two times, This story will peel back the curtain of heaven and we will enter into the heavenly courtroom, the heavenly place of government. And this is the first scene. It happens here in verse eight. Then the Lord said to literally the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power. but do not, But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Now, who is this Satan? What is, he, what is he doing in the heavenly courtroom, in the seat of government? There are so many questions that this narrative poses for us. Now, that word Satan there is literally, it's just a transliteration, word for word, how we find it. And it, it's um, always, as we read it in this story here, it has the word the, the Satan, right? The Satan in it. And it literally means the opposer, the accuser. And it may not necessarily mean the same person as, you know, the enemy, the devil that we find in the rest of the Bible. It could be. We're not 100% sure. But he comes to God with a question. And this question questions both the validity of Job's faith and God's policy of how he deals with people. It's a cynical question that the opposer, the the accuser brings not all that dissimilar from the question of the serpent in the garden and he says to God does Job fear you for nothing does Job fear you for nothing of course Job is blameless of course he serves you of course he fears you you've made it beneficial God for him to do so The accuser says the only reason that Job is faithful in his worship is that you have blessed him. You've put a hedge of protection around him. If you've grown up in the Pentecostal church, you've probably put a thousand hedges of protection around various people, places and things. Job has a literal one. God has hedged him, protected him, blessed him. And the accuser comes and says, Job's faith is convenient. Take the blessing away, and you know what? Job will curse you to your face. Now, that, the word there is actually bless you to your face, but the author is using it in a, in a sarcastic way. He will curse you to your face. But not only does the accuser question the validity of Job's faith, he also questions God's policy of how he works in the world. And he suggests that God's policy of blessing the righteous undermines legitimate faith. That God's policy of blessing the righteous undermines legitimate faith. The accuser is accusing God of peddling a prosperity gospel. That's what he's doing. God, the only reason that these people worship you is because you've made it beneficial. You have peddled a prosperity gospel. Now you'll see here the tension that the accuser brings from our our triangle of tension. He, He assumes this grid and then lays it onto the problem that he's observed as he's been roaming the world. Job is righteous. You are a God of fairness. You are just. Therefore, you have blessed God. You have blessed Job. And if you remove that blessing, this whole thing will unravel. That is the accuser's problem that he poses to God. And so God allows the accuser, as a way of reckoning whether or not his accusation is correct, he allows the accuser to unravel untold suffering in Job's life. Verse 15, the Sabaeans attack. And they steal all of Job's oxen and his donkeys and they kill his servants who are tending to them and only one escapes to tell the news. Verse 16, fire falls from the heavens, burns up all of Job's sheep and his servants and only one is left to tell of the news. Verse 17, a Chaldean raiding party comes down from the north and steals all of Job's camels and kills his servants and only one is left to tell the news. But worst of all, Verse 18, the worst possible news a father could hear. It says this, verse 18. While that servant was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Combination of Human injustice and natural disaster strip Job of literally everything that he has. All of it, in the blink of an eye, in a moment, is gone. Now, no parent is meant to bury a child, but Job here is faced with the prospect of 10 funerals. Seven sons, three daughters. Kind of reminds me of that tragedy that struck the Abdallah family in February of 2020 when their kids were walking on a suburban street in Oatlands to get ice cream and a drunk driver mounted the curb and mowed those kids down, killing three siblings and a cousin and critically wounding three other children. Imagine the grief that that family had to encounter that day as they received the phone call to say, three of your children are dead. I can't even begin to fathom the loss of a child, of just one, let alone all of your children. Now, the loss of a child is very sadly the grief that some in this community know. And it is a devastating grief. And Job is pulled under a current of pain drowning as wave after wave of grief crashes on his head and pins him under the water. But there are more waves to come in Job's life. There is a second round of suffering to follow for Job because we reassemble in the heavenly courtroom a second time. God questions the accuser. He says, Have you seen my servant Job? After everything you have done to him, he still maintains his integrity. And the accuser says, skin for skin. Strike him in his own body. Strike him where it hits him the most. Then he will curse you to your face. And so a second time, the accuser goes out. Verse seven. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat Among the ashes. That's a painful picture to watch. A man who has been stripped of everything beyond the breath that is in his lungs. That is all he is left with. He has a wife, sorry. His wife is still there, a small mercy. She's not particularly gracious in his suffering, but she is there. Job has the lung, the breath in his lungs and that is it. A sorry picture of a man whom the world would have looked at as a pinnacle of God's blessing and success to a man that the world looks at now and says, what did he do that God was so angry at him? What did he do to re- receive God's punishment on his life like this? I wonder how you would deal with the type of suffering that came Job's way. Perhaps not even that extreme, extreme. How would you respond? Well, this is how Job responds staggeringly in chapter 1, verse 20. After hearing the news that his children are dead, the very next thing that Job does is this. At this, Job got up tore his robe and shaved his head then he fell to the ground in worship and said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away may the name of the Lord be praised in all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrong doing who says that I who. Who responds to suffering in that way? After losing everything, and I I don't know about you, as I read that, my skeptical response is it sounds too theologically accurate to be a genuine heart response from Job, right? Does anyone anyone else read that and go, no way? It's lip service for the watching community. The only problem with that is we are not given a single hint that there is any hypocrisy in this response from Job. Job does not do what most typical Aussie males do with their grief. Bury it. We bury it with video games, hobbies, social media and beers at the pub. right? Job does not bury his grief. He is honest with it. His initial reaction there before these words roll off his lip is to tear his robes, to shave his head. Now they are two very common ancient Near Eastern modes of grieving. It's public. It's for people to see. It's for people to participate in. He tears his robes. He shaves his head. He sits in the dust and he laments. He grieves. He does not suppress his pain, his hurt or his grief. He is real about it. And it also says there that he bows on his face to the ground. Now, the NIV has translated that as he worships God. But it literally just reads, he Bows on his face. He puts his face on the ground. Now, that is either profound grief or worship or some mysterious combination of the two. But Job does not fake it. He's not faking here. He is real about his pain, his hurt, and his grief. But the other thing that Job does here is he doesn't deny his faith. Grief and faith are not like oil and water. In his pain, Job worships God. Job praises God. Now, sadly, too often pain in this world is the very trigger for people to abandon their faith altogether. And as a pastor, it's a story that I've seen over and over and over again. And part of me is like, I get it. It's understandable, right? This is probably the biggest question that we have to wrestle with as apprentices of Jesus. But Job here does not let the presence of pain and suffering in his life erode his faith. His automatic response is to grieve publicly and worship publicly. Job recognizes that God is in control, that God is the one who gives. He says, naked I came into this world, naked I will leave. Everything that comes in between is gift, it's grace. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. But Job's wife, who admittedly has been through the same trial, has experienced the same quota of suffering, It was her children that died. It was their family's wealth that was completely eradicated in a day. The only difference is that she has not been personally afflicted like Job has. And she says this to her husband in chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replies, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept from God. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he had said. That's very easy to just take this response to Job's grief and say, see, this is how we should respond to suffering. But I want to suggest to you that Job's response here is not the only way that we can respond to suffering and perhaps not even The model response to suffering because Job doesn't stay there. Job's response of praise and worship ends in a few chapters later with him questioning, crying out to God. In fact, he gets so angry at God that he begins to question the top of the triangle. He holds on to his own integrity so tightly. He believes that God punishes evil and rewards good that he begins to question whether or not God is in fact just. So grief isn't linear. That's what Job models for us. In one moment, you can be praising God and doing well. And then a few seconds later, you can be plunged into the depths of lament. There are so many ways that you could appropriately respond to suffering in your life. You could cry. You could yell at God like the psalmists do. You could enter into a season of lament You could be struck with depression, grief, and sorrow. And all of those could be completely valid, appropriate responses to the presence of grief. You know, the Bible is not like a spiritual version of the movie Inside Out. You know, familiar with the movie? Where joy just runs the ship and seeks to just push sadness out to the side. It's like, just get rid of sadness. If we can just gloss over all of the painful things and then you realize that sadness is actually necessary and needed in the human psyche. The Bible, doesn't, the Bible does not gloss over things and encourage us to project a chipper version of life, right? Should be right. No, in fact, what we see time and time again, even modeled in the life of Jesus, is real, raw, honest, gritty, authentic faith that wrestles with God in the midst of our pain and brokenness. By the accuser's economy, by his measuring of what he has seen in the world, he says God punishes bad people and God rewards good people. That's how God operates in the world. And Job will tear the triangle down by the time we get to the end of the story. That's the spoiler alert, okay, in case you were wondering. That's not actually how God works. And Job proves that. Because here we're told right at the very start of this story that Job was blameless and upright. There is such a thing as an innocent sufferer. There is such a thing as someone who encounters suffering, pain and brokenness and they didn't do anything particularly to deserve it. You see, the very center of our faith is the suffering of God himself, the innocent sufferer of Jesus, the one who came. And so any faith that wants to minimize the role and place of suffering in the life of the believer and promise some twisted version of health, wealth and prosperity has missed the mark by a mile. The book of Job helps us see, That God doesn't operate the world on the principle of justice alone. There must be something else. So hang in for the answer because it will come. But I want to finish with this. I think suffering reveals for us, suffering reveals for us the nature of our faith. And if when a season of suffering comes into our lives, our response is, God, How dare you? Have you not seen how I've been serving you? Have you not seen how much I've given? Have you not seen how much I've contributed to church? Do you not see my prayers and my Bible reading? I mean, I've ticked off the Bible in a year. God, how could you send this to me? If that's our automatic natural response to suffering, then I think we have placed on God an expectation that is not realistic. And what, in fact, what we're saying is God You're in my debt. Because I've done all of these things in my life, my expectation is now that you would bless me. And that's the exact same economy that the accuser has laid upon God. If you are going to be fair, God, and I have served you my whole life and been a good Christian, how could you possibly send this suffering in my life? If that is us, and to be fair, it's so easy to get there. Like I mentioned, a head cold, I'm there. But I think we've got God backwards. And I think we've misunderstood how God operates in the world. And Job entirely shatters that paradigm for us. Job is the one who at the sign of suffering utters the words, naked I have come, naked I will go. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Shane Viglione had six beautiful children, a beautiful wife. I was diagnosed with terminal cancer and says those words. Why me? Why not me? If the Lord counts me worthy to suffer, then so be it. This is a staggering response to the presence of suffering in a person's life. Job-esque in every way. And I don't want to minimize the significance of the pain that people in this church are walking through. And one of my fears of preaching through this series is that I just at times I don't really feel worthy to stand in front of a church and talk about suffering because in my life, literally, I've only just scratched the surface of the quota of pain and suffering in the people's lives that I've had the privilege of ministering to in this church for the last 10 years. How do we respond to a moment of suffering, brokenness and pain? Is our automatic response to question whether or not God loves us? In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrestles with this problem. I don't don't think these verses are going to be on the screen, but he wrestles with this problem as he talks to the church in Rome and he says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You've been united with Christ, connected to God by faith in Jesus. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast. We also boast in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The presence of suffering in our lives, the question of theodicy, that is how do we reconcile what we know to be true about God and our experience of this world is often the process of formation and is often the time when so many saints would say, you know what, that is the season the dark night of the soul was the season where I grew in my faith the most. Often we, we miss what God is trying to do in our season of pain because we are so focused on the acuteness of the grief, pain and hurt that we are feeling. We are so riddled with questions. We cannot see through our grief to what God is doing behind the scenes. I want to suggest that God is at work. Whether we perceive it or not, God is at work. And our suffering and pain is often God's means of forming us and shaping us and growing us. You know, my old pastor Ray always used to say, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. And that can be true. But I think we all know people who have walked through a season of life and haven't come out on the other side better. And then we can look at people who have walked through a season of grief and you think, my goodness, what God did in the midst of their pain is a miracle. Because this person has the strongest faith that I know. It's not an automatic process. But I want to suggest to you that those seasons in life, the seasons of grief and pain, if we would perceive them and see them, can be a gift from God to form Christ in us. The African-American pastor Thabiti Anya Wibler says this about suffering as he was preaching through that back half of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, a staggering quote about the presence of suffering in a Christian's life. He says, God is as sufficient with our suffering as He is with His Son's blood. God is as sufficient with our suffering as He is with His Son's blood. The blood of Jesus was effective. It achieved purpose. The spilling of the blood of the Son of God achieved purpose something and God was sufficient with that and he is sufficient with our pain and our suffering your suffering christian is your slave your suffering is working for you to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and get this he says this the next time suffering comes knocking on your door you say welcome my slave welcome My slave, produce for me the glory that God has designed. God is in the business of doing a thousand things in this world and a thousand things in our suffering in ways that, to us, to our perception and our understanding and our economy, simply do not make sense. And yet the truth remains that He is at work. And not just at work, He's present. He is the God whose hands were nailed to that Roman cross. He is the God who left the throne of heaven and walked the dusty streets of this world to experience what it was like to be you, to walk in your shoes, tested, tried, tempted, He knows, and His promise, His promise is that He's with us. God doesn't have an agenda to fix you. That's so often what those Christian platitudes are about. It's just, I just want to fix this person. God has no agenda to fix you, but He does want to form you. He does want to shape you and make you like His Son, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. My hope is that we would be the type of community that can see through the pain, through the hurt, through the brokenness to what God is doing, even when we don't understand it, even when we've got a billion questions about it, that we would surrender ourselves just like Job did to the good hand of a sovereign, present God. Oh, I really want this series to be something that doesn't just end in us sitting in chairs, nodding our heads and then leaving, but a series where God profoundly ministers to the needs in this community. And there's, there's brokenness As I look around the room, even this morning, there are tears being wiped away. There are stories. There is pain. And if we're to be the type of community that doesn't just gloss over the hurt and brokenness of this world, then we need to learn to know what it looks like to step in to someone's pain and to stand beside them. And that's what we're gonna see Job friends do next week, both well and then terribly. but that's my hope. So I don't want this just to be something that we listen to and then leave. I want this to shape us as a type of community that knows how to walk through seasons well. And it seems to me that the churches that do that best are the churches full of people with gray hair and life experience, not the type of church that has an average age of, you know, barely beyond adolescence and puberty, right? We're a young church. We just, don't have a huge quota of suffering. I have friends who are pastoring churches that are much older than this that take funerals quite regularly. They know what it looks like to be a community that steps into the pain, doesn't run from it. So I wanna invite you to stand as we respond now in worship, in in Lord's Supper. In a a moment, we're gonna celebrate a meal together. Just before we do that, I want us to spend a few moments in in reflection, in stillness. Perhaps God bringing to mind for you circumstances of pain and suffering, people in your life, in your gospel community who are hurting at the moment. Just take a moment in stillness and silence to just locate in our imagination and memory and mind that God is present. He sees, He knows. He's not unaware. He's not distant. He gets it. He sees your questions. He's not afraid of them. Father God, we pray this morning that As we come with confusion and the chaos that swirls in our emotional life and the mess that is in the relationships around us and that nagging, cynical question in the back of our mind of whether or not you're actually good and actually love us, God, I pray you would help us to see this morning in this meal that we celebrate together the best gift that you have ever offered to a broken world, your son. His sufficient, effective blood poured out for us. The best declaration that you could ever offer to us that you are for us, that you love us. Lift our eyes, even just a little bit this morning, God, to see beyond the pain, to see hope that sits on the horizon, beckoning us to believe again, to trust again, to have faith again, to endure again. God, I pray that you would make this church the type of community that is able to step into the pain, to deliver hope, not simplistic platitudes about life, not proof testing verses over people's pain, but to be the type of community that knows how to walk with each other, to care for each other, to be present, to deliver meals, to pray, to whatever you call us to do, God. And help us to do that in such a radically countercultural way. That the watching world would look onto this ch- church community and just like we have done at Job's response to pain and suffering, say, How? How is this possible? How is this possible that a church this young would have the emotional awareness, the internal tools to build a type of community that's so rich and deep? Father, I pray now as we respond in worship in the Lord's Supper, you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit. I pray for an extra measure of your grace for anyone who is here this morning, who's walking through an acute season of pain and suffering, be present. We thank you that you promise that you are. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' strong name. God's people said, amen.